This past weekend, I set out for a solo hike in the Catskill Mountains in New York. When I arrived at the trailhead, two other hikers, not together, also pulled up. This area has no marked trails, so any landmark worth getting to is technically a bushwhack. After some friendly salutation, the three of us established that we generally had similar itineraries and decided to head up the highland together. Eventually, one of the guys fell behind, and after waiting for a bit, the other gentleman, new hike bro, and I figured he changed his plans. So, we pushed on. We summited two peaks together and then decided to extend the trip a bit in search of an 80-year-old plane crash situated in a very rugged area. After some more heavier bushwhacking, we found the wreck. I knew people had died in that crash, but I read about several plane crashes in the Catskills. At the time, I didn't exactly remember the details of this particular relic just knew it was there. It's certainly a sad experience when you happen in a place you know somebody took their last breath, especially in such a violent way. Besides just a general feeling of sympathy and melancholy, I can't say I felt any sort of eerie vibes. It was a beautiful day, and the post-hike beer was the next waypoint. New Hike Bro and I silently walked around the wreck, taking pictures and video, and being careful not to touch anything. Our wanderings had put us about 25 to 30 yards away from each other, and in between us was a water drainage. So we couldn't really hear each other, even if we wanted to talk. We explored in continued silence for about 20 minutes, I closed my camera. As soon as my viewfinder snapped into the camera body, I heard a deep male voice that did not sound like New Hike Bro say, Nice shot! The best way to describe the voice was like a compressed, amplified whisper. Almost like Christian Bale's Batman, but with more tonal quality and sort of a digital texture to it. It sounded close, but also like it wasn't surround sound. All very rooted in good old-fashioned science, especially when we were on the side of a mountain and between two ridgelines and next to a drainage. I just assumed it was somebody and looked up from the direction I thought it came, half expecting to see the other hiker we had been separated from earlier. We had discussed a plane crash on the way up, so I thought it was him just being cute. However, he was not there. Nobody else was either, in any direction. New Hike Bro was down the ridge a bit, and he was busy framing a shot. By now, about 40 yards away from me, I made my way to him and asked if he had said something. He had not. To be honest, the creepy still didn't set in 
until about 10 minutes later. I just figured it was somebody's voice carrying from somewhere up the ridge line above us. But as we made our way back to the more established herd path, the more I thought about it, the more the creep crept in. I distinctively heard nice shot. I would swear by it to anyone on anything. As we got back to the easier ground, new hike bro filled me in on the specific details of the plane crash. Three souls on board for a military training missing post-World War II. They went off course in bad weather. Two of their remains were found. One never was. I never shared what I heard with New Hike Bro. I don't think anyone wants to walk out of the woods with a total stranger spewing ghost stories in real time. Honestly, I still feel like there's gotta be an explanation, but I just can't get over the nice shot part, especially right as I close my camera. In 2017, my last semester of high school, some friends and I decided to skip the pep rally for the girls' varsity basketball team, making the playoffs for the first time. My last period of the day was theater tech. I was just taking it as a fine arts credit, and two friends of mine in the grade below me were in that class with me as well. We decided to skip the pep rally leave school early and go to the nearby Taco Bell like we did every day. However, administrators and security guards patrolled the parking lots to catch kids trying to skip. So we took a little detour through the nature trail on campus to avoid them. Once in the nature trail, we came across this kid I hadn't seen before. He was a skinny white kid with shaggy black hair, wearing baggy jeans and a plain white tee. He was shorter than me, but the most notable thing about him was his general look of dishevelment. His hair was wild and full of leaves and twigs. His plain white tee was dirty. The knees of his jeans were stained green and brown. He seemed like he had been crawling around in the nature trail. I remember wondering if he lived there for a split second. When we came upon him, we were walking in one direction, parallel to the school, in the back of the parking lot. And he was coming directly toward us. I knew the nature trail well enough to know that a bend led deep into the woods and I figured he had come from there. He was out of breath, and he looked scared. My two friends said hi to him. My friends later told me that the kid was also in their grade and was just an acquaintance. It was just supposed to be a quick hello, but I couldn't help but notice how scared he looked 
and how suspicious he seemed of us. He asked us what we were doing in the woods, and we told him that we were skipping the pep rally. One of my friends asked, What have you been doing out here? Camping? My other friend and I gave a nervous laugh. (laughs) But the kid didn't crack a smile. He explained that he was dropped off at school that morning and was supposed to get on the bus to take him to DAEP. DAEP was the alternative school that kids who got suspended from school went to. His plain outfit seemed to make sense now. It was the infamous uniform of the alternative school. He then explained that he didn't want to go to the alternative school. So when his mom dropped him off, he pretended like he would wait for the bus and then hid in the nature trail the whole eight hours of the school day. He was still acting skittish and without even looking at each other or speaking to each other, my friends and I could feel that something wasn't right and that we were in some kind of danger. The kid looked around nervously as if seeing if someone might have followed us or if we were alone in the woods. We hit him with an, all right, man, well, good luck. We're going to try to get to our cars and go home before the pep rally ends. When he heard the word cars, he perked up. He started walking with us towards the parking lot, continuing to talk. He becomes a lot more friendly and asks us if we can give him a ride home. We give him some half-baked excuse why we couldn't. We didn't expect him to ask that. We never met him and my friends barely knew him. But he doesn't take no for an answer. He tells us that people were going to start looking for him pretty soon that he would be in a lot of trouble. We say to him that he'd probably be fine hiding there, deep in the nature trail. But he tells us, Nah, man, you don't understand. I broke into a car at the fellowship. He pointed in the direction of the mega church that had a parking lot that backed up to my school. I took this from his waistband. He pulled out a handgun, and I felt sick to my stomach. I had never seen a gun in real life. At this point, I really felt in danger, not just because he produced a gun. I had never really been scared of them, more so that the entire interaction felt uneasy and that the guy was already unsettling and desperate. One of my friends very cautiously tells him that he should probably just ditch it and take off somewhere. He just stood there, staring at us for an uncomfortable amount of time. His eyes were meeting each of ours. I broke the silence by saying that we wouldn't tell anyone, but that we had to go before the pep rally ended. My other stupid-ass friend, who had been virtually silent the entire time, spoke up and said, Yeah, and it's best we're not around if they start looking for you for that. Gesturing to the handgun. His eyes narrowed, and once more, he asked if one of us could take him home. This time, 
It felt more like a command. I've never been a super brave person, but at that moment, I don't know why, but I just blurted out, Nah, man, I'm good. Again, there was an uncomfortable silence. Then he asked, Before you leave, do you guys want to see something? My first friend was kind of a hothead. And although he was uncomfortable with the situation, he was not afraid of conflict. Nor was I. My other friend, however, was not a fan of conflict and always would de-escalate first. We all looked at each other and me and my first friend kind of had an unspoken understanding. Like, if this is going to happen, if we had to run or fight, we might have to do it now. My other friend was very visibly afraid. He asked, what do you want to show us? And before the kid could answer, my first friend said, We don't want to see it. We have to go. My first friend started briskly walking past the kid. And the other friend and I quickly followed. Within a few steps, we just started sprinting towards the parking lot. I looked back once. We were about 50 steps away. I looked back, and he was still standing there, watching us run. He had put the gun back in his waistband before taking a small adjacent trail back deeper into the woods. By the time we made it to the parking lot, there were police everywhere. We were sweating, out of breath, and terrified. They found the kid in the next ten minutes. Somehow, in all the chaos, nobody saw us exit the nature trail and into the parking lot. But since there were so many cops in the parking lot, we decided to just head back inside through another side door to find that the door was locked. That's when an administrator found us, brought us inside, and shoved us into a classroom where we were able to talk with others and find out what was going on. This is what we could piece together from what we learned. It turns out that the kid had skipped DAEP, hid in the nature trail, broke into a car at the church, and stole a semi-automatic shotgun and a handgun from the vehicle. After stealing the guns, he had messaged his girlfriend and told her that he was about to do something terrible and that when she saw his name on the news, she should turn off the TV. He told her explicitly he was going to kill kids at school. She knew he was supposed to be in DAEP and was so worried about the messages that she contacted the police. DAEP went on lockdown until officers got a call from a guy at the church that two guns had been stolen from his car behind the school. And that's when they put two and two together and caught him hiding in the woods. I guess when he saw my two friends and I in the nature trail, he quickly hid the shotgun, but didn't have time to hide the pistol, or didn't care enough to hide.
I was face to face with a murderer just minutes after he committed a homicide. This happened to me and my wife a few months after we moved into a new place. This took place back in November of 2018 and wasn't even fully resolved until just recently. So, back at this point, my wife and I were going through some hard times. I was making money through some slightly illegal means and had gone to jail for nine months. I got out in September of 2018 and had a job in the city waiting for me when I got home. Now, when I got out of jail, my wife was living with her mom about an hour away from the city, but she knew we had to find somewhere to live close to both of our jobs, which were both downtown in the city we were moving to. Since we were starting all over after legal fees, lawyers, fines, and other assorted debts, we knew we could only afford something super cheap that would let us pay week to week instead of having to pay security deposits and monthly rent up front. We found a boarding house in our city and checked it out. There were four rooms in the house with a shared kitchen and bathroom for everyone. We moved into one of the rooms. Our neighbors on the first floor was a 30-year-old Asian lady and her mom. And then upstairs, there was a young black guy who moved in the same week as us. And also a young couple that lived in the room next to the young black guy. In the three months we lived there, the only people we talked to were the young couple upstairs. They seemed similar to us in age and interest, and we usually just talked to them in passing or on the front porch when we were all out there having a cigarette. They were nice enough. They also smoked weed, which me and my wife did as well, and we smoked on the porch together a couple of times. Things were just A-OK until November came, and shit just started to hit the fan left and right with this couple who will name Jim and Sierra. It started off small. Things like hearing them get into short shouting matches, or one or both of them asking me and my wife to borrow money, or constantly trying to bum cigarettes. One day I came home and Sierra was walking into the house at the same time as me with three guys I've never seen before and a case of beer. They party all night and keep me and my wife up, but we end up going to bed around 5 a.m. A few days later, we are woken up on a Sunday, me and my wife's only day off to Jim screaming at Sierra and throwing all of her stuff into the front yard. He was calling her a whore and a slut and told her to get out of his life, yada yada yada. They argue for like three hours and eventually... Someone picked Sierra up. We had about a week of peace and quiet, but by the next week, she was moved back in. And the fights and screaming were constant until one night. It was a Tuesday night, the day before my birthday. Me and my wife worked that day and just kind of lounged around after work. My wife and I ended up smoking some weed around 1 a.m. 
and put in a funny movie to laugh at all night. The whole time we were watching this movie, we could hear Jim and Sierra screaming at each other. We could hear the stomp of their feet as they moved around upstairs in the room, right above our ceiling. Seemed like it just went on the whole movie. After actually making it through the movie without falling asleep from smoking too much, we both noticed that Jim and Sierra had finally stopped fighting. We both wanted to take advantage of the quiet and laid down and cuddled up to sleep until we had to go to work in the morning. I was woken up in the middle of the night by my wife, who was shaking me and looking off toward the side of my bed. I was so tired and out of it and I thought maybe she saw a giant bug and wanted me to kill it. I turned over to get up and when I do, there is a man standing next to my bed, hunched over my nightstand, going through the drawer. And the man has an empty milk gallon in his hand. After rolling over and us locking eyes, he stood up from his hunched position and was just staring at me. I kicked my feet onto the floor and sat up on the bed as he started backing up slowly, one step at a time. At this point, I finally realize that it's Jim in our room, going through my stuff, holding an empty milk gallon. Now, as I said, I was still pretty out of it, and just calmly said to him, What's up, Jim? Why the hell are you in our room, bud? After a few seconds, Jim says, Can I borrow your guy's car, man? Or can one of you take me down to the gas station and back real quick? Thank goodness for my wife, who was finally fully awake, unlike me, who said, What? You broke into our room to borrow our car? No, you can't borrow our car after you broke into our room at 4 a.m. Now get the fuck out of here, you fucking weirdo! Jim leaves, but he doesn't just leave. He sprints out the front door and starts running down the street towards the gas station he wanted to go to. I look at my wife, and before we can even say anything to each other, our other neighbor from upstairs comes down and says that Jim and Sierra were fighting worse than he had ever heard or saw, and that he hadn't heard any noise coming from the room for about an hour. My wife, who was feeling protective of a fellow female, who had to endure this abuse, told me and my neighbor to go upstairs and check on her. We go up the stairs, and the door to Jim and Sierra's room is shut, but not locked. I knocked and shouted for someone, Hey, Sierra, you okay? And there was no answer. Standing side by side, me and my neighbor turned the doorknob and pushed the door open. On the back wall of the room, Sierra was lying on the couch face up, and we also noticed that the floor and ceiling had been hacked up like someone was trying to get inside the floor and ceiling for some reason. My neighbor and I walked over to the couch, thinking that Jim had knocked her unconscious. 
but when we made it to her, we realized that there was blood on the couch, and thin blood streaks on the wall, and blood all over her. I can't speak for my neighbor, but as I looked at her, I thought, she doesn't have a face. The neighbor called the cops immediately, and I was just standing there, dumbfounded. I heard him tell the police that Jim had smashed his girlfriend's face in with a sledgehammer, and the weapon was still there, but Jim had run off. The police told us to leave the room and wait outside if we felt safe doing so. The cops came and put an APB out on Jim, and they found him an hour later running down the street. After talking to the cops, they said it looked like Jim was trying to find the gas line in the house, and he probably wanted to go to the gas station to get fuel to help him burn the house down with Sierra inside. After all the cops left and everything calmed down, my wife and I looked at each other like, what the fuck? We had to call into work the next day because there were two news vans out front all morning. And every time we stepped out for a smoke, they were badgering us for an interview. It ended up being a tiny blip in the news, the short paragraph in the newspaper. But yeah, that was how I was face to face with the murderer right after he killed his girlfriend in the same house we were in with him. The prosecutor asked everyone in the house to testify in court. By the time they asked me to come to court, it was two years later, and at that point in time, I was locked up for a probation violation. Keep in mind, I'm in the same county jail that Jim is in while he is going to court. I had gone on vacation while on probation across the country, and they found out about it. So... They gave me 60 days to do in county jail, and then I would be done with probation. It just so happened that during those 60 days, the trial took place for Jim. The prosecutor let my wife bring nice clothes up to the jail, because it wouldn't look good for a criminal in jail stripes to take the stand and testify against this guy. And the prosecutor thought I was well-spoken enough that the jury wouldn't know any better. Now, the way this particular county does court is they basically round up everyone in the jail that has court that day and take them all to a giant holding cell in the courthouse's basement and take you upstairs as your case comes up. I told the officers taking me to the holding cell that I was a witness in a murder case and I didn't want to be put in the same room as the guy I had to testify against. They said that wouldn't happen and took me to the holding cell. I started thinking, well, they probably have the serious murder type cases in a different cell. When they come to call my name to go to court, I start walking to the cell entrance from behind I hear someone 
say my name, and tap my shoulder. I turn around and, of course, it's Jim. Four feet away from me, face to face. All he said after I turned around was, Good luck today. And all I could do was reply, You too, and get the hell out of there. After that, they put a special command in the system to keep us separated. My dad grew up in forestry in Queensland, Australia as the son of a forest ranger. So my whole life, we spent a lot of time out in that forest, camping and driving through parts of the forestry that only rangers would travel, and only occasionally. One place that dad loved to take us was a little farm in the middle of the forest that was impossible to find if you didn't know the way. Locals knew the place as Spike's Hut. Spike was a local farmer who had lived there for decades up until the 90s, and he had a reputation for being abrasive, violent, intolerant, and not concerned with the laws of men. He had a habit of approaching guys in bars who were wearing earrings and tearing them straight out. And there were a few stories about people who displeased him, disappearing. Spike was not a nice guy, and his farm and hut reflected that pretty well. Dad would take us out there every time we visited the forest, and the hut would be more and more dilapidated, the vibe always the same, that straight-up feeling of being watched, even though Spike was long gone. As I got older, I became more aware of the signs of life in the place when we went to visit. There would be 44-gallon drums full of smashed beer bottles and fire pits with reasonably fresh coals. Someone was definitely out there. God knows why, since this place was literally a snake pit at that point. But Dad didn't seem concerned. One trip when I was a teenager got real strange quickly. My friends and I were all piled up into my dad's 4x4, and we were driving through the bush to Spike's, so dad could tell his scary Spike stories and freak us out. We drove onto the property and something immediately caught my eye. Up on the hill opposite of Spike's hut, there was what appeared to be a cowboy slumped against a log, hat over his face, taking a nap. Something about his body position looked unnatural and uncomfortable. It wasn't the way you'd be sat if you were taking a casual nap in the middle of a workday, and even if it was, there was no reason for anyone to be out there. The farm was long defunct, and there was no forest business to be taken care of on the property. I pointed it out to my dad and Instead of letting us out of the car at Spike's, as he usually did, he said he wanted to keep driving through the farm to show us something. He maintained that it was nothing, but that if the figure were still there when we came back through, we'd stop and check it out. 
Of course, whatever he wanted to show us seemed totally made up. As he just drove through the forest a bit, and when we came back, I spotted the slumped over cowboy again, never having moved an inch, still in that same unnatural position. I yelled out to my dad to stop, reminding him of his promise, but instead, he acted like he couldn't hear me, locked the doors, and drove off the farm much faster than he had ever drove on those dirt forest roads before. My friends and I looked at each other in confusion, but we knew that when it came to this area, questioning my dad was futile at best, dangerous at worst. Dad denied that any of the events of that day ever happened after that, but my friends and I were still curious about what was going on out there. So a few months later, we went camping on our own and set out to find Spike's hut. It took hours of driving through the forest to find the gate to Spike's property, but eventually we found it without dad's help. Something was off once we got there, more than usual that day. My mates jumped out of the car, but were suddenly frozen not wanting to walk any closer to the hut for no visible reason. The vibe was just wrong that day, and it felt like we had walked into something that didn't belong to us. The tug in my gut to get out was intense, but I'd spent two hours finding that place, and I was going to explore it, goddammit. One of my friends acted brave and walked from the car to the hut with me, quietly acknowledging more more signs of inhabitants with knowing nods between us. We said nothing to the others, but we were on high alert. It felt like someone could be back any minute or that they had never left and were watching us as we poked around the debris. We walked up to the side of the hut to find a kind of small shed with three walls. I heard my friend's voice go squeaky as he called me over to look inside. On the ground was a huge pile of ashes from what looked like a cooking fire. Confirming this was the presence of a giant makeshift grill made from cross-hatched wire sitting over the fire hinged to the shed wall. As I'm looking at this setup, I figure that whoever has been there had been hunting and cooking large chunks of their kill over the fire. Pretty clever, actually. But then, my stomach dropped. As my eyes traveled from the grill to the ground, I saw a baby's sock. Tiny, pink, and terribly out of place. Then another. Then a shirt. Then a ribbon from a child's hair all sitting right beside the ashes on the ground, next to a woman's weekly Christmas cookbook. That's when the alarm bells in my head went off, and I rounded up my mates to get the fuck out. Some ranger or crazy old bushy hanging out at that trashed hut was one thing, but there was absolutely no reason for a baby to be out there 
and there's no way anything good had come of having children's clothing right by a massive fire and grill. When we got back to the campground, we couldn't shake the awful feeling of being watched, and all of us were so unsettled that we packed our shit and decided not to stay the night. When I got home, I told my dad about it, and he just shook it off, saying weird stuff happens out there. Being young and dumb, I never thought to look up the missing persons in the area in an attempt to explain either the cowboy or the kid's clothes, but I could tell you I would never make the mistake of going out to Spike's without my father again. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets and so much more download the app in virginia today and get 150 dollars in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at betmgm betmgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly see betmgm.com for terms 21 plus only virginia only new customer offer subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days please gamble responsibly gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER promotional offer not available in washington dc